<laughs> this this went a lot smoother than I thought. So um, uh, look at that! Wow, technology. <laughs> can you Fine. see me? Okay? You can see me all right. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can Beautiful. see you. Can you hear and see us? Oh yeah, yeah. I like the backdrops you have going on there. I mean, this Thank is you. all sort of blurry. Yeah. I saw, I saw one the other day and they had the Beatles behind them. Like he looked like he was in a room with the Beatles. So I oh, guess yeah. nice. amazing things you can do with Zoom. So I, I, I just have the blurry because I'm sitting in my office here and it's a mess. So I've got like oh. my bike behind me and the, I'm sure the dog's going to come in through the door any moment. So, yeah, yeah. If I, I mean, if I, I don't know if I knew how to do that, I would do that, too. But it's, <laughs> it's, I, just, I just picked a boring wall. So anyway. So after yeah. almost two years, Ron, you haven't mastered zoom no i mean um well you know i've you know i've I've got a new computer so i I wasn't able to get on with my old computer for some reason yeah i tried and then my wife so the first few times i had to do it my wife would get me on her computer okay and um but but there are a few times you know where it we were all set up to go and then the camera for some reason wouldn't work or would just be audio so i always found it a bit stressful um, but anyway, uh, it seems to be a lot smoother these days. I just did one the other day. All so, right. um, so awesome. yeah, but I, I'm a Luddite anyway. I don't have a cell phone. I don't, uh, you know, I don't really, um, you know, engage in all that kind of stuff. I probably Wait. should. Be. Hold on. Hold on, Ron. Yeah. You're, you're prolific mm. on Twitter. Yeah. You're telling me you're doing that from your computer? <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, is there any other way? I don't know. How to <laughs> um, yeah, no, but I, I, uh, I don't know. I understand how people do it on on those phones because just you know uh, they're so small to, to type all the you know. If I was if I had to type all the puns I, I, I put on a phone, I would I don't know. I'd be have bad arthritis or something. I don't know. <laughs> oh my but, goodness! Uh, yeah, I would. I would eventually like to get off Twitter though, because I feel it's such a something very needy about it that I don't like, you know, it's, yeah, you do a stupid joke and then you have to wait to see if anybody liked it or it's just something very sad about it. So anyway, <laughs> no, it's interesting. Listen, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I love you. I love your tweets. Yeah. They always bring a smile to my okay. face. So thank you. Um, well, when I got on COVID, I didn't, I mean, sorry, when I got on COVID, when I got on Twitter, I didn't really know what you were supposed to do with it because I was checking out other people's sites and some people were political or some people were, uh, you know, have had pictures of what they ate or something. And I, you know, I've always loved Jack Benny and Groucho Marx and all those type of people. So I, so I, you know, in in the course of, of a day, I'll get all these stupid, I don't know if it's an idiot savant thing or what, but I'll get these sort of puns or wordplay and now I have an outlet for it. And um, so I tried to make it kind of a happy place. And, and especially during COVID, I've probably, you know, went into overdrive with the with the puns and the, you know, the video, the music videos I've been doing, just trying to uh, boost people's morale and stuff. So um, Ron, Ron, here's here's a suggestion. Uh, yeah. Rick Emmett just published a book of poetry. He did. OK. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think. I think it would be awesome if you like if you published your tweets in a book. <laughs> well, you know, you're not the first person to say that. I think it would be 
It would have to be one of those, you know, bathroom books, you know, that's right beside it <laughs> yeah. or something. I don't know. Uh, it, it, for me, it's just such a, you know, goofball thing that I do on Twitter. Yeah. That, um, you know, I don't tell really, I don't tell jokes in my concerts or anything. Like, you know, it's, there was one guy who came to a show in London and he didn't know I made records. He thought it was going to be a stand-up comedian or something, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I just think to put it in a book would, would give the, give it too much uh, dignity or because it, it's just, for me, it's mostly just shameless dad jokes and, um, <laughs> you know, maybe after I'm dead, someone will compile them all and put them in a book. But, and also I repeat them a lot too, because some days I wake up and I can't think of one. And I remember one that I did like three years ago or something, you know, and I'll, I'll put that up, but, uh, nice. you know, and I'm also trying to, like, I just made a new record. And so yeah. I sometimes I have to go, what, are, what what is it that I do again for a living? All right. It's songwriting. So <laughs> Um, I have to get back to that. And, uh, but the Twitter has been a fun thing. I've met a lot of my heroes on Twitter, you know, nice. like songwriting heroes that I admire and actors and act, like really famous people who follow me. And it's so bizarre. It's so, you know, so surreal. So, um, so it's been good in some ways and bad in some ways too, because Twitter can be very angry, yeah. unforgiving place as well. And I've had, you know, people coming after me sometimes for things like, especially when Trump was in office and what have you. But, uh, but mostly my, my, my site is a bunch of friendly people. Yeah. I can't believe there's anti-pun people out there on Twitter. <laughs> well, you know, not everybody's <laughs> going to like you, right? It's, yeah. In this world, everyone has an opinion now, too. So it's, it's um, yeah, but you have to sort of tread lightly, I think, on Twitter because people are sensitive. And sometimes they can't read the, you know, they can't, it's hard to read it sometimes when you just see it. And, you know, if, if you don't know somebody that well, they, some people could take offense to something that was innocent uh, in yeah. a way. So I hear you. Well, hopefully yeah. Greg will be polite enough today that you won't block him on <laughs> Twitter. Cause Greg has been blocked by how many, how many superstars, Greg? I think one. Just why? <laughs> what, why? What? What happened? I think I mentioned too many times the mm -hmm. Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, Smashing Pumpkins Pearl Jam show at the Masonic Temple and oh. how that didn't go well for Billy Corgan. Oh. Uh, and he got booed off after, I think, the second and a half song. And so, yeah, yeah, I, he didn't. I, I, yeah, I vaguely remember that. Um Definitely been unfollowed by people. But uh... <laughs> Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hi, this is Ron Sexsmith, and I'm the guest today on Welcome to the Music. Welcome, 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 welcome. We're so excited to have you on, Ron. Thanks for joining well, us. Really appreciate thank you. it. Such a relief. I got that in the first take. So. <laughs> Nailed it. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, I, well, I guess first off, congrats. It's it's 25 plus years now as a recording yeah. artist. Yeah, I mean, um, probably even longer because I was trying for a decade, even before I got signed, you know, I was making independent 
cassettes and things like that. But yeah, my first proper album came out in 1995. So yeah, that would be 25 years, right? Or something. Yeah. I yeah. I, I, um, I was reading a blog post from like back in 95 or something. And, and uh, you know, I know you can, I know you've collaborated with a lot of musicians over the years and you know, want to talk about some of that as we uh, get into the conversation here, but um is it safe to say that Bob Wiseman was a big part of that early part for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I shudder to think sometimes where I'd be if I hadn't met Bobby. Um, mm. Because it's pretty remarkable when I think about it, because I moved to Toronto with nothing. You know, I had a family, I had no money. And I meet Bobby pretty much the first month I'm in town. And I was at an open stage and and apparently there was a better open stage that I didn't know about called Fat Alberts. And he told me I should go to that. And, um, and I didn't know Bobby was in Blue Rodeo or anything. I just thought he was this nice guy. So I go to Fat Alberts and it was kind of like, I found my, my place, all these amazing songwriters that had a huge influence on me. And Bobby um, around that time was producing records for people uh, like Bob Snyder and Sam Larkin, people who I was just getting to know. And so he kind of added me to the list. Uh, he, he only heard a couple songs. And next thing you know, I'm in a studio and he's paying for everything. I didn't have any money. And he produced this thing, which would end up becoming a Grand Opera Lane, which was my first, uh, you know, cassette album. And, and then he went and, and shopped it around to all the labels himself. And, and, and I got turned down by everybody. Um, and then even after that, he, he knew somebody in Los Angeles and, and he sent it down there. So, so just the whole thing of me getting in the door, it was really, I'm kind of forever in his, in, in his debt, uh, for that. What do you think of his book that he wrote not too long ago? I, I, I haven't read it. I only heard that he had a book okay. and is it, is it, is it full of all the stories that he's been posting on Facebook? Is that it? Yeah, 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 it's it's yeah, it's it's it remind like you t- you guys remind you guys are like brothers from another mother. Yeah, you know, like the stuff, the stories uh, uh-huh. in in his book, they're just random. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are more often than not funny, right? And um, and but did, 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 am I in the book? I didn't. I wasn't sure. I, you uh, know what? Do you remember, Greg? I don't. It was. It's been a long time since we we actually had Bob on as a guest a couple right. years back. Well, I mean, Bob, Bobby's. Uh, you know, he's a, a character. You know, Bobby's a real yeah, character. Yeah. And even sometimes when we were working, early days when we were working together, I didn't quite know. Like, I, I felt like his dumb sidekick. You know, I was just <laughs> I didn't know anything, and he he could be a bit of a, a bit of a smart Alex sometimes, and um, you know, so. You know, even recently, after I moved to, to Stratford, I got a call from him one day. He said he wanted to come see my house. And it's about an hour and a half from Toronto. And he drove up. He sat on the porch, didn't even go in the house, was here for maybe 45 minutes, got back in his car and drove back to Toronto. It was like so weird. You know, I thought, well, we're probably going to go out for dinner and he's going to stay over. I don't know. Um, so I, I've never been able to quite figure him out. I, you know, but obviously he's he's. Uh, you know he's a genius, and uh, mm-hmm. I love I love a lot of his records, and and I and my favorite Blue Rodeo lineup is the one with Bobby and um, and with 
Cleve and not not to take anything away from yeah. Glenn and those other guys, but when Basil and Cleve were playing together and Bobby was there, it the Blue Rodeo had more of a, a punk element to it than um, they do now. You know, it's just gone more and more sort of Amer- Americana kind of thing. Even some of the jams back then were like different than you get today, where they just start. We used to start freestyling it, and it was just. I got goosebumps because yeah. it was just amazing. When they'd yeah, and he was he was an exciting performer to watch too back then. You know, I mean they all mm-hmm. they all had a great look and, um, but yeah, they they definitely were coming. They had a country element, but they were also coming from the Clash and all that other stuff. And um, anyway, so I, I'm partial to that era of of, of Blue Rodeo, and um, but I, I totally get why he left the band as well. You know, because he he was writing so many songs and. It was kind of like George Harrison, you know, he never got to do his songs when, when he was in the band. So, you know, so he had this kind of backlog of that. So Yeah. So you mentioned about moving to Stratford and Bob coming to visit you there. Can you talk a bit about the move? And I mean, it's interesting timing just before COVID, but, you know, it was like a few years before. But, yeah. you know, what, what was that move for you like? Well, the, the move itself, I mean, it's never fun to move, you know, and we'd been living in the same place in Toronto for about 16 years. So mm-hmm. we'd accumulated so much, you know, junk, right? <laughs> and um, so get just getting it here, we, we you know, we took us three truckloads and um, it was a huge upheaval. So and then, you know, when you first move in, you're living in boxes and everything's crazy. And I don't do well with that. I'm not good with chaos and renovations i get i get anxious so so for the first two months that we had the house i was still in toronto living in you know with with one chair in the living room or something right (laughs) because at least the wi-fi worked and everything and then my wife was here with the renovation crews doing doing things um but but ultimately it was the best thing for me i think and for us you know because i think toronto at Towards the end, I was really feeling out of place there. I was feeling like a bit of a, like I don't know. Like I'd be the, I go to a bar where I used to know people, and I wouldn't know anybody anymore. And I, um, I felt kind of like this old man everywhere I went. Whereas here, I felt kind of like the young guy at first, you know, when I moved here. <laughs> so I don't know. It was just good for me. I think I'd stayed in Toronto maybe uh, ten years longer than I should than I should have so and I never owned a house before and that was also a big deal for me um it's funny all my bandmates live in Toronto they own houses you know because for years we would tour everyone would get paid except me because I'm paying for everything so it was finally to be able to walk in the front door of a place that I actually own is is it's like putting my big boy pants on you know and um it was just really good for my overall you know, peace of mind or mental health and all that stuff. And how, how is it, how is it like changed or has it changed? Maybe it hasn't changed, but has it changed the way you write music and influence in that sort of more relaxed, more at home style? Well, you know, the thing about for me in songwriting, um, I tend to write, uh, you know, and for, I guess it's probably true of any songwriter, but when there's a lot of upheaval and changes going on, you know, like the first time I ever wrote songs was when I, my son was born and that was a whole soap opera story. And I wrote and so many tunes. And so when I moved here, I didn't know anybody. And I was kind of in the middle of this huge songwriting frenzy where I wrote my last album, which was called Hermitage. And then at the same time, I wrote a whole musical and that had about 22 songs in it. 
Um, so I was just writing uh, like crazy. Um, so, you know, it hasn't, uh, you know, whereas I think before I left, I was think I was writing a bit less for some reason. Um, so I think the changes of, of having a new place, a new, a new beginning was really inspirational for me. And also, I think as a couple, Colleen and I, we, you know, got a lot closer here too. And so it's a very, my last almost quite romantic and we were sort of in this, you know, new beginning sort of phase. Um, and then, you know, I've just finished a new album in Nashville and that was all written here during COVID, right? So, um, so there hasn't been any shortage of songwriting. So. That's interesting. I, I, uh, I saw that um, you did. When when you released Hermitage, or, mm-hmm. and, and I, I read about a collaboration, and you know I'm in the wine business, so I thought it was Hermitage, and I thought, oh, maybe you did a wine, and then I read it was coffee beans. Oh yeah, <laughs> well that, that that's one of those fluky things. Are these we've there's some really good coffee places in Stratford, you know, but yeah. and these this couple we know, Christy and Blair, they have their own coffee roasting company, and they it was their idea to do some. Kind of, it was all for uh, for charity actually, and they asked if they could do a specialty coffee, and all I had to do was draw the picture on it. Um, but they've done one as well for, um, you know, uh, remember Janis Joplin had a band called Full Tilt Boogie Band, and and there was a guy in that band from Stratford. I think his oh. name was Paul Till or something. But anyway, they have a coffee named after him too, and um, called Full Tilt Boogie Blend. But it was kind of an honor to, I mean, I never thought I'd have a coffee brand, you know, it was just, didn't see, I know Jim Cuddy has his own wine, maybe I should do that too, but, but I didn't have a, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> so That's funny. Yeah. So Rhonda, are you it's still? Really good coffee too, I should, I should add. Sorry, sorry. Right. Check it out. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, go on. Ron, are you still walking over to the laundromat to write songs or, or do you go down <laughs> to the basement? We have a lot. We have a washing machine now and the dryer. So, and um, but you know what? I actually miss going to the laundromat because I, you know, we we, even where we lived in Toronto, we had a washing machine. We just didn't have a dryer. But I would go to the washing machine, wash uh, laundromat, I should say. Uh, It was just literally two minutes from my house. You know, I get a coffee at Starbucks and watch the clothes spin around. I, I actually really enjoyed it. And then also, I like to look at people, and there's always characters coming in and doing, you know, and you're always trying to, not not obviously looking at them, but like just taking it all in, right? Yeah. And I wrote so I wrote quite a few songs at that laundromat at Queen and Bellwoods, like probably full albums were written there over time, you know. So I do miss that. Ah, interesting. So, like, yeah. do you go anywhere now, or are you writing at home? Well, for me, um, you know, I was a courier for a long time, right? Like yeah. delivering packages in Toronto. And I wrote a lot of songs, and I still do. I still write a lot of songs when I'm walking. So every day I walk to town, and it's about a 20-minute walk. And I, it's a it's a nice walk, though, because it's around the, the river, and there's swans and, you know, bunnies and all this stuff. Off. I feel like Huckleberry Finn in a way. <laughs> and, and I walked to, walked to town, and... And that's how I kind of do it, where um, I'll just start humming to myself, and uh, you know, and, and there'll be stuff that's on my mind, and and generally by the time I get back, if I if I'm in the middle of writing an album, it's a nice way to get further with the song, you know, like maybe I have a song but I don't have a second verse, so I could walk to town 
and usually by the time I come home, I have a second verse or, or something started. And, um, uh, so, so yeah, I don't really have a laundromat to go to, but, um, I still walk a lot and, um, and I do, you know, I, I write a fair bit when I'm cutting the grass, we have a big, big yard, you know, so I'm, anything, anything that's kind of, you know, not too taxing on the brain, you know, it's like <laughs> doing the dishes or pushing a lawn or I, I can get a lot done in that space. So, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Speaking Sorry. of mowing the lawn yeah. um, and, and, you know, Greg was that talking about your, your, your uh, last album. Mm-hmm. What's, what's up with the cover? You're, okay. There's, mm-hmm. there's a story there, right? Cause I've, I've heard that you, you do actually dress up like Elton John. I don't just for the album. <laughs> yeah, well, the, what happened was, um, and I really, you know, I, I, I'm not a mechanical guy, like I said earlier, and I, I just have a, well, I don't know, analog lawnmower, you know, whatever, just the kind of goes clip, clip, clip. And I, I was out, and I really enjoyed doing that, actually. So I was out cutting my lawn one day, and, um, you know, there's people walking by a house all the time, and these sort of locals walk by, um and started talking to me and, and the, the man had said that our house was had become known as the celebrity house, which just seemed kind of funny to me because I'm not that famous. And, you know, Peter Mansbridge lives on the same street as me and he's kind of way more, oh, you wow. know, but he told me that it was called the, that they, it had become known to some people as the celebrity house. And so right away in my mind, I, I imagined being like Elton John, you know, cutting his own grass and, or being like some kind of eccentric rock star living in a, and, and I could see the album cover already right when he said that in my head. And, um, cause I, at that point, I think I must've been already, I, you know, I was working towards making an album or something. So I had the songs or whatever. And so, so yeah, so I just had this image of, of being like this sort of, eccentric rock star cutting the grass. Um, I didn't know if it was going to work or not. I hired this guy, Eden Robbins, to take the photo. And he had taken my last one, actually, where we dressed up like The Last Supper on our on our album cover. Okay. Um, so he's kind of like Annie Leibovitz or something. He knows how to do these high concept kind of... So, yeah, we just went out in the backyard. My wife was very helpful setting up... Uh, you know, a croquet set and all sort of thing. And we just took this, took the picture. He got it almost right away. And, um, and I thought, well, there's my album cover. Um, nice. You know, now I'm trying to think what picture I want on the cover of this next record. It's a, uh, it's always kind of a fun puzzle. Right. Um, you talked about songwriting earlier and I know, you know, you've written via many musicians, a number of musicians. Um, one of my wife's favorites, Cry, Cry, Cry to, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, like Rod Stewart and Elvis Costello, yeah. which is incredible. So when 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 you're getting into the songwriting, are you writing songs that eventually get their way to the musicians or are you sometimes writing with the musician in mind? Um. You know, it's funny, most of the songs, most of the covers that I've had were just songs that were on my record, Um, you know, but I, I, because I have in the past thought, oh, I'm going to write a song for Diana Krall or something, or, and I wrote it, and I did actually, I wrote a song called Foolproof. Um, It was at a time where I'd been dropped by my label, and I didn't know if I was ever going to get signed again, and I thought, well, Maybe I can get lucky with a song, but if, but she's never done foolproof, but I, but I wrote it for her 
and it ended up on, on my next album. Although it has been covered, I think Feist did it at one point. She used to do it in her shows. Um, so I find it usually when I set out to write a song for somebody, they never do it. So I don't really do that anymore. I just write for myself and hopefully someone like Bublé did a song called Whatever It Takes. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. But before that, I had sent him about three or four songs that he never did, <laughs> you know, that I thought were more up his alley. Right. So so I just thought, OK, and because you sometimes you think, you know, a person or you think, oh, they're going to like this one or something. But but it's not it maybe they see it as um obvious or too obvious to do like maybe Diana Krall thought it was too obvious the song I sent her mm. you know because it was like a jazz ballad or whatever but what's, so, what's it like when, when a buble or somebody like that picks up one of your songs and runs well, it's, it's incredible um, I mean the Rod Stewart one was so surreal because that's kind of everyone's dream you know I was a big fan of Tim Harden you know for, um, songwriter from Greenwich Village and all that and most people think of the song Reason to Believe as a Rod Stewart song, but Tim Harden wrote it. Um, so when I heard that Rod Stewart had recorded Secret Heart, I was a little afraid that everyone would start thinking it was a Rod Stewart song, you know, and, and I would maybe make money from it, but, uh, you know, nobody would ever remember me. Um, but his version uh, was, wasn't even a single. It was just a song on, on one of his albums. Um, and, but that's, you know, Feist did that one and Nick Lowe did that one. It's, it's been covered quite a few times. Yep. <clears throat> none of them have made me very much money, none of the versions, actually. But, um, but yeah, and when Buble did it, it was so, that was pretty exciting because they flew me down to Malibu because uh, he wanted me to sing on it. And I still don't understand why he wanted me to sing on it, you know. But I went down and David Foster was producing, and that was interesting. Um you know, and that that song, because it was on such a successful album, it did quite well for my publisher, which, you know, when, when the publisher's happy, then they're they're pretty generous with their advances and things, right? So so um it was yeah, it was just helpful uh, for my just sustaining my livelihood. That's awesome. That's awesome. You mentioned a bunch of great Canadian musicians there in that answer. And so mm-hmm. I know I can't remember where I read it, but you said something along the lines of something about, you know, people like Anne Marie and Rush could only come from Canada. What is it about Canada that that uh, has uh, gives us bands like the hip and the bare naked ladies? Yeah, and, and not only them, but even you know, Lightfoot and Joni. Like Oh yeah, for sure. Know, when you think about yeah. those Leonard and Gordon they're as influential in the world as anybody is Dylan or the Beatles and, you know, um, and, and, but you're right though. There's groups like Rush that you kind of go, well, I think, you know, when they first came out, some people thought, Oh, they sound like a bit like Led Zeppelin, (laughs) you know, for their first album, they really didn't, but people always need to compare some, you know, but, but, you know, I think what it is with Canada I, at least I found it in, with my own songwriting is we're kind of between two really dominant cultures. You know, we have the American thing and they're kind of our noisy neighbors, right? They're, they got the roots of the music that we love and all that, but also being a Commonwealth country, we have all that Englishness about in the melodic sort of thing, the Anglo thing that goes on over there as well. 
at least I'm talking about my personal experience. And, you know, I was, all my favorite groups were from England when I was a kid, like a teenager. So I loved the Kinks and I loved uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan and all, all that, the Beatles. And I grew up at a very melodic period of music too, which really rubbed off on me. So when I'm trying to find my sound, it's somewhere between the folky kind of Lightfoot thing and Neil and Leonard and it's kind of mixed with um, that other, the English music that I like. So, mm-hmm. so there's something, and I think there's something in the character, maybe this is a cliche of a, of the, of a Canadian person, but the sort of, you know, you won't see a lot of Canadians like wearing sunglasses indoors, you know what I mean? Like Lenny Kravitz <laughs> or something, right? There's a sort of thing, uh, a humility or, or, or maybe uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure the weekend wears glasses and some indoors. I don't know, but it's all changing. But I think there was a time when, yeah, I think if 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 you if a Canadian saw someone acting cool, they they would get away with it, really, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, there is a kind of understated, shy thing about Can- Canadians, and and it's also in our accent. Like Neil Young can sing a country song, but you know he's not from. Tennessee, you can just hear it in his mm. voice. Right? So. Yeah. Uh, speak. Speaking of of Neil Young, um, one of my f- here we my go. favorite musicians. <laughs> I should say one of. I love my, Neil. My, my Your favorite. favorite. I mean, this is all Neil Young stuff. Yeah, I love here. Neil. Yeah. Um, I, what's, I your fa- big, what's your favorite Neil record? Uh, it's the one that I can't remember, but this was the. <laughs> This was the live version. It had Mansion on the Hill on it. Oh, oh wow. Um, but this and that that album is is I don't know what the musical term is, but it's not in print anymore. Oh, too bad. But um he just released this or I think it was earlier this year, Down in the Rust Bucket. Yeah, I've seen that album cover, yeah. Yeah, which which is the I guess the concert that they did right after they started uh, yeah. right after they recorded. Uh, that particular album. I'm sure I can go on Google and yeah. and, and, and find out the name. But what's what's your favorite uh, Neil Neil Young album? Well, that's it's a tough one, you know, because I even like uh, some of the later ones, you know, like I, I like Prairie Wind quite a bit. But I mean, I love um, you know, obviously after the Gold Rush is a really good one. I like that and mm-hmm. um, and Harvest and um, I mean, for, yeah, as a songwriter. I was probably more of a Leonard and Gord guy than Neil, but I, I have a lot of, you know, I have a lot of Gord's records and all Leonard. I do have a few, a few Neil, but I just, I've always admired him for his, uh, I mean, he just, the output, right? Like he's the, yeah. he's coming at you from a different place all the time. And it's just, you just, and whatever he's doing at that moment, even if the record doesn't become, you know, one of your favorites or anything, he's so committed to it at the moment that he's doing it. Then he kind of leaves, then he forgets about it, goes on to the next thing. You yeah. know? So it's pretty remarkable. And it could be like totally different sound. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah he'll do like a rockabilly record and then a, you know, electronic thing or something. And, or he'll do a jammy kind of crazy horse record and then a really yeah. beautiful folky type of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and he, he's always playing with different people, different, yeah. you know, he had Pearl Jam on one record and he had, um, the Willie Nelson's kids on, you know, yeah. the last few, I think. 
That's right. Yeah. Name but of yeah, the album just, was Ragged Glory, by the way. Oh yeah, Ragged Glory. Yeah, of course. Ragged yeah. Glory. Just, just the the best. Yeah. Um, I like that. I think it was called Sleeps with Angels album too. It had um, yes, in, right inspired by Kurt Cobain. Died. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah, a good I've one. Got, I've got that somewhere, somewhere here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted. I, I want to ask you about your your new album, Ron. What do you mean the um, one I just finished? Yeah, the one that you just finished. What What can you tell us about that album? Well, I'm still waiting. Uh, every day I check my email, hoping that I'm going to get. The mixes, uh, you know, they're, they're trickling in, right? Um, he said he's about ninety-five percent finished mixing it, and then, then they do the you know, mastering and all that. But I was so I was so psyched about this record. Um, you know, I went down to Nashville to do it, and that was the first time I've been anywhere since COVID started. Yeah. So that was a bit surreal. Driving down with my wife, we went to Ohio to visit her mom first, and then made it down to Nashville. And but I worked with a guy named Brad Jones who played bass on some of my early records, uh, like my second, third, and fourth record. Um, but I'd never worked with him before as a producer, and I was so um, impressed with him, his string arrangements and his woodwind arrangements and just just his instincts about everything. I went down with all these ideas, but his ideas were always better than mine, you know. <laughs> so I would at some point I'd go, you know what, you know what you're doing. Uh, I mean, I wrote all the songs, but I mean, like, I would have an idea of maybe I would hear horns on something and he would be, well, actually, I hear this on it instead. And I was like, and it was always better, as I did, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so we made this record and I'm so excited. I, I think I'm singing good on it, which isn't always the case for me. And I, I think he brought in these incredible musicians. Um, you know, it's just it was just a, you know, my manager lives there, so we got to see him and some people from my past came and they threw a party for me on the last day. Oh, people nice. that, you know, musicians I knew from there and some people who had opened for me on over the years. And um, so, but the whole is weird though, being down in America during, uh, during this crazy time, mm-hmm. even though, you know, I was recording every day, all I thought, kept thinking about was uh, getting back home. You know, uh, I, I, COVID has really made me a home body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, being, and so I felt I was just thankful that I was working every day to keep my mind off how homesick I was. But, um, but anyway, now we we got everything done that we needed to get done. Um, I'm already going to start this week working on an album cover with this photographer I know. And um, so I'm hoping if the labels thinks, because I'm not a huge priority at the label, but I'm hoping it'll be a record that they want to put out next year. Yeah. Okay. Although it could, it could be the following year. I don't know. So. Yeah. Yeah. You must be looking forward to getting on the road, touring at least, as much as you love home. Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, I do love performing, but I'm not a big fan of traveling. Um, I'm a nervous flyer, you know. And and so my first show in March uh, is in Dublin. So the thought of getting on an airplane (laughs) with having to wear a mask the whole way there and whatever hoops we have to jump through, you know, with – COVID tests and stuff like that. It's not, it's just not as carefree as it used to be, you know, getting on a plane and going somewhere. I'm hoping it will return to that, that at least some semblance of the good old days, you know, but I, I am, I am looking forward to the tour. um, And I hope it happens because it's been postponed three times now. Oh, wow. I hope it happens um, because uh, it gives me something to, 
to, you know, to work towards and where I feel useful gives me, you know, because for most of COVID, I was just like a lot of people putting on weight and drinking and, you know, and and with a tour coming up, it gives me something to work out for or to try to look presentable for. (laughs) Um, And and then, but the fun part is always you're at the venue and you, you know, there's people there and, and, you know, and you get to perform and all the other stuff is, you know, the older I get, it becomes harder, like traveling or lugging your bags everywhere, not sleeping or not eating well. Um, but again, so yeah, I am, I am looking forward to it, but I have, uh, you know, it's a love, not even a love hate, but a love something other than hate. What's a less strong word for hate? I've just a lot of concerns, I guess, about it. Mm. Yeah, understood. You mentioned about, um, you know, realizing more of a homebody and that during COVID. Um, yeah. You know, going back a couple of years ago to the release of your book, uh, Dear Life, I, I believe in the dedication you dedicated to your old ki- your adult kids, which, you know, my kids are in their 20s. So when I when I saw that and heard about that, I was like, I, I, I can feel yeah. you on that. Um, uh, what I wanted to do is, you know, uh, explore with you the differences between you know whether it's it's good bad challenging whatever between songwriting and writing a book like yeah well it was uh really hard to write a book which i guess uh anyone who who sets out to write a book will probably tell you (laughs) the same thing um i i never it was never on my list of things to do at all um so basically what happened was i had this story and I didn't know what it was at first. I thought maybe it was an idea for a movie. And um, so for a few years, uh, I have some actor friends. So I would be like, hey, what do you think of this? And I would tell them, the, give them the gist of it. And and they were all like, oh, that sounds great. But it would never go beyond that. And I didn't know how to get it off the ground. But just from talking to people about it, one day I got an email from Penguin out of the blue. And we hear you have a book idea. And, and so I went to the boardroom and it was actually them who encouraged me to write it. And, and the, the thing that they did, which I think really was helpful, was they gave me a deadline. Mm-hmm. This was like about February of 2015. And I was about to go on the road and they said, see if you can have your first draft in by the end of August. And so and I took that as an exciting challenge. So I'm in the van every day on tour trying to get trying to write a chapter a day and mm-hmm. and so when uh, by the time August came around I had my first draft and I handed it in ultimately they didn't go for it penguin but so I had this sort of brief period of shopping it around and some rejection until finally I found a publisher but then even then it was like maybe 16 drafts after that mm-hmm. before wow. before it was finally ready and um, and it had to go through the editing process, right? Where the um, there's a substantive edit where this person helps you with continuity and all that. And then there's the actual editing process where they put in all the right punctuation. And it was interesting. I don't think I'll ever write another book, but I was so proud oh, that, that I wish I could, but I, I, I was just so amazed that I actually wrote a book that uh, and I think for a, I'm really proud of it. I, 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 if Neil Gaiman would have written it, it would have been probably a hundred times better, you know. <laughs> but I think it's a good book for a, a songwriter, and you know, who's never written one before, right? 
Good for you. Thanks. And I'm um, hoping to make hoping to make it into a movie too. So we'll see. If oh, nice. oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, tell, me about, about, tell me about the breakfast that the late okay. Linda McCartney cooked for you. Yeah. How does, well, how does, how does that happen? Okay. Well, this was, um, to, to go to back up slight a uh, bit before that in 95, my first album came out and only in North America. And, uh, and it wasn't happening. It wasn't on the radio. It wasn't selling. And I was about to be dropped. And in December of 95, Elvis Costello held it up on the cover of Mojo magazine, which created all this interest for my album all around the world. And so in 96, they sent me to England. I'd never been to England before. And I was given the royal treatment of the red carpet by, you know, I was in all the magazines and I was, um, the the band squeezed open for me at my very first show, uh, you know, at the borderline. And they took me out on the road with them. And so what happened was I was touring with Squeeze and having a really good time. And Chris Difford, one night, it was a Saturday night after the show, and he said, why don't you cancel your hotel and come back to my place? I live in the country and, you know, and we can, you know, have a good time tomorrow walking around the village or whatever. And so on the on the way home that night, he points to this uh, street and says, uh, you'll never guess who lives up there. And I, I just thought of the biggest person I could think of, which was Paul McCartney. And I said, was it Paul McCartney? And um, and he said, yeah. And, um, and, he, and then he said, right before we went to bed, he goes, maybe I'll give him a call tomorrow and see if they're around. And I just found that so remarkable. <laughs> and so I was, I could hardly sleep. And I woke up probably two hours before Chris did. And I'm downstairs making myself an instant coffee or something. And finally, Chris wakes up and he calls them. And and Paul and Linda were just waking up and they were making breakfast, so they invited us over. Wow. Uh, I just couldn't couldn't believe it. So we get in the car and, and it was just ten minutes down the road from where Chris lived. <clears throat> and uh, I was there about three hours. Linda was going through her cancer treatments at the time. She had a, a bandana on her head, you know, and yeah. Paul was in his pajamas basically. Um, so we had breakfast and I got to ask him all sorts of questions that I never thought I'd ever be able to ask him, mostly about wings, actually. Yeah. Um, we listened to some new tracks on the stereo of, of the album that he was making. And then then he broke out the guitars and we da- we jammed a bit. So, wow. um, yeah, it was just the best day ever, ever really. Um, that was in 96. And then I think Linda died the following year or, or something, or maybe the year after. So. Mm. But yeah, it was incredible. Um, you know, and, and, and had I been there a week earlier, I probably wouldn't have been invited because the weekend before I was there, George and Ringo were were having breakfast with Paul because they were doing the um, anthology series at the time. Oh yeah. So, so I definitely wouldn't have gotten an invite that time. You know. So anyway, it all worked out. What was That's fascinating? What was the, That's was fascinating. There, what was the biggest surprise? Um, well, I'm trying to think, I mean, like, it's funny because I'm 57 now. Paul was like 53 at the time. You know, it's just so crazy. And just how kind of, you know, how kind of humble the house was. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't a big uh, ostentatious kind of thing. Um, We were in the kitchen, which was at the back of the house. 
And there was like a sheepdog running around. A couple of his kids were there, like James and Mary was there. I mean, there weren't kids, obviously, they were bigger. Um, but I think one of the most surprising things, I went at one point to, he had a little water closet off the kitchen, you know, this tiny little toilet. And inside there, I was, uh, you know, doing my business, looking at the wall, and I realized there's a Picasso in the in this little water, co- water closet. Yeah, and... I mean, it said Picasso on it. I'm assuming it was, maybe it was a print. I don't know. But everything about it was surreal. I, I played him I played him a wing song. And then at the end, he told me I had a couple of chords wrong. And he showed me what the, the, the right chords were. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but it was amazing. And, uh, you know, and, and at Lyndon Paul hadn't heard my music then. They'd only heard about me. From from you know Elvis and people like that. Yeah. So, but they were very um, very welcoming and gen- especially you know Linda. We talked about Gordon Lightfoot. I remember, which was really cool. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And Paul's like, oh yeah, he's written some good songs or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it was uh, it was really uh, I had a pinch myself moment. You know, for sure. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I want to ask you one other sort of jamming story that I, I read about. So I guess it, you didn't play live, but you jammed Dancing Days with Robert Plant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, we were, I got added last minute to a, a songwriting circle. It was for charity that Steve Earle was, and Emmy Lou Harris were running. And and Robert Plant, surprisingly, was a part of it, too. And I'd met Robert a couple times before, once with Gord Downey, actually, and once um, once in England at a Jimmy Webb concert. We hung out after the show. So so I knew him. I didn't know him, but I met him, and so he was friendly with me. So he came and sat down beside me on the stage, and I'm just making small talk. I'm like, well, what's are uh, you going to play any Led Zeppelin songs? And and he was kind of like, oh God, no, I'm not going to play any any Led Zeppelin songs. And I go, okay, well, uh, you know, I know Dancing Days in case you want to jump into that. And he was so surprised, you know, he's like, you know, Dancing Days, (laughs) you know. And um, he had a guitar player with him, and and we just looked at each other. We both launched into Dancing Days, and and he sang. This was just at soundcheck, and he sang the whole song. and I couldn't. Believe, and I was sitting right close to him, so I was feeling like the, the, sort of the heat coming off. The they don't make rock stars like that anymore, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming off Robert Plant, it was just so primal, you know. And and we did the whole song, and we were both almost like high fiving, and that was amazing. And we really thought we were going to do it in the show, but for some reason, Steve Earle vetoed it. I think maybe because. It had everyone had a certain amount of songs allotted for them, right. <clears throat> but I think I, it's a shame because I think people would have went you know nuts if if we just broke into that song. And um, I think somewhere my wife has it on videotape because she was oh, there wow. filming, but I haven't I haven't seen it because at one point they came and told her to turn her camera off. Right? So, oh my goodness! Yeah. Wow. Because well, it's for sure. Massive, yeah. well, you're not allowed to film inside Massey Hall apparently. So. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was another pinch myself moment for sure. That is yeah. awesome. That is really really cool. Um, earlier, I, I want to ask you about this. You know, earlier we were joking about uh, you know being on Twitter and we're busting Greg's balls on, on you know being blocked by rock stars. <laughs> yeah. um, 
you've been blocked by the Westboro Baptist Church. Oh, yeah. No, not on Twitter necessarily, but you're like on a list. Good people to be, you know, to be yeah. blocked by, right? Against, because, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that's like a proud moment. <laughs> well, what happened was I wrote a song called God Loves Everyone that was on one of my albums uh, back in 2002 called Cobblestone Runway. And that song was written because I'd never heard of the Westboro Baptist Church before until Matthew Shepard was killed in uh, Wyoming. And I was reading uh, in a magazine how at the funeral of this this young, uh, uh, I can't remember how old he was, but this Matthew Shepard, uh, at his funeral, there was this Westboro Baptist Church group across the street protesting it with the most horrible signs. I was like, what the, I mean, if it was today, I wouldn't be so surprised because there's so much hatred out there now. That's, you know, Um, but I remember I wrote God loves everyone. Like the lyrics first, I had scribbled the whole thing down and recorded this song. Um, And certain people took issue with that song because it's weird. You have something that you think is the most positive message. God loves everyone. And people take offense to it. Right. And, and so they found me um, and came after me on online. And it was actually the leader of the group that was writing. And he would say stuff like, you know, you've got some really good songs. You know, I'm like, I don't care what you think about me. I, said, <laughs> I don't want to know you at all. You know? and, 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 but they, they start this sort of thing where they dig up dirt on you, like how I, I wasn't with my first partner anymore. And that was supposed to, I was going to hell because of that, or I was going to hell for all these different reasons. And they made a flag. I'm not a flag, a sign with my face on it that said, repent or perish, you know, with my face. And, and some of the other people who are, who are uh, belong to that organization came after me too. And they would, they would go uh, on my YouTube page and, and put the most horrible comments under my songs and stuff. Um, but then they, thankfully they've, they've moved on to somebody else, you know, they stopped, but it went on. It was kind of upsetting. It went on for a while. And um, so, yeah, I don't even know if they're on Twitter, but I would definitely block them if they were. So. Absolutely. It's crazy, crazy times, crazy times, Ron. Yeah. It's um, unreal. We have a segment uh, called lost venues mm-hmm. where we, uh, you know, discuss a favorite venue of yours, Ron, that uh, you've played at, or maybe you've got a funny story about that uh, mm-hmm. that no longer exists. So, wondering if you have a, a lost venue story for us. Um. Well, one of the things that comes to mind is there was a famous club that Nirvana used to play out in Seattle. Do you remember what it's called? It was it was the place where I think they you know, they got their start and, and it became this, it was a real like punk club. And we played one of the very last shows there before it closed down. Oh. And, um, and, and it, I don't, the only reason I remember it is because my drummer, Don Kerr at the time, he had this thing he made called a talking drum, which, which had a speaker head and all these sort of like bungee cords on it. And, but it made this really cool sound. And before the before the show, he was sort of messing with it or trying to, you know, tweak it or something. And the whole thing uh, just fell apart, this drum. And it was kind of an important thing to our sound at the time when we were playing live. And 
And Don, we used to call him Donnie Darko because he had this really bad sen- uh, temper sometimes. And and when it all fell apart, he basically, you know, it was like trashing a hotel room. He trashed the dressing oh, room, beat, like, punched everything. And, and we had to leave the dressing room because we were afraid for our lives for a bit. Um, and then he, and then we were worried, well, he's not going to be able to get this drum back together in time for the show, which miraculously uh, he was able to. And it was just one of those sort of, you know, life on the road stories. And we, you know, we get on stage. But at the time, I've never done that well in Seattle. So (laughs) I think like if it wasn't the last show at this club, it was like the the second last show or something. And there wasn't um, we had maybe 20, 30 people in the audience. It wasn't very uh, you know well attended at all but it was a good feeling that we got to play this i wish i could remember what it's called now maybe you could google it um, was it called the gray door might have been called the gray door is that where in seattle and it's in it, seattle that's one of the places word? i think it had a more like a one word name for it though mm. maybe it was the gray door i'd have to go look on my on my uh website there's an itinerary you know yeah. archived and it says all the venues and stuff yeah but um but yeah at the time um because it was after kurt had died so there crocodile? was crocodile was it the crocodile no i played there though okay yeah. i'm wondering actually it might have even been in portland but it was some place where they, <laughs> they they had they were famous it was famous mostly because nirvana had i think it was seattle though actually but i'll, I'll look it up <laughs> All right. But it would have been it would have been like ninety five or ninety six when we played there. So. Okay. Rod, how do you feel uh, about playing a song? Sure, uh, I got yeah. my guitar here. Just say yeah, sure. <laughs> what uh, what song do you are you going to play for us? Can you hear that? Okay. I you can hear that, so. right? Yeah. Well, I thought um, I would just do something. Uh, from my most recent album, that's okay. Yeah. Unless yeah. you had a, something else in mind, I don't know. Whatever you want to play. Okay, this is the first song uh, from my Hermitage record. Where will it lead the spring of the following year? After the winter has fled from our bones. The only thing I know for sure That I will love you Even more Even more What will it bring The spring of the following year Will it bring flowers To shower our hearts Vines that climb around our door And will you love me Even more Even more For love is our city on the hill Don't it seem pretty from our windowsill Love 
is our city on the hill Don't it seem pretty from our windowsill oh, oh. What birds will sing in the spring of the following year Will it bring new birds with words from above? Guess no one really knows for sure. But I will love you even more, even more, even more. All right. Spring of the following year. Great song there, Ron. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I had a little muscle memory involved because I hadn't even thought about that song in a while. So anyway, it all came back. <laughs> what uh, what inspired that uh, that song? Well, you know, when it, it, when we first saw our house for the first time, when we decided to buy it, it was in the mm-hmm. winter. You know, and I was you know, but we're surrounded by trees and everything and hedges, and so. I was, we were just imagining how pretty it was going to look in the spring and, and uh, with the flowers and all the garden and all that kind of stuff. And so I went home, we were still living in Toronto. And so I wrote the song even before I moved to Stratford, but with just writing this sort of hopeful feeling of a new beginning and, and, and yeah, and how pretty, and it does, it looks incredible in the spring and the summer and actually every season. Um, So yeah, so it was inspired by that. Nice. Lovely. 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 Um, I want to ask you two quick questions. Well, one might not be a quick question. I'm going to ask you two quick questions before I finish off. Um, One is going back to that blog post from 1995. And one of the, one of the quotes, not quotes, but one of the comments in it that I thought was really interesting. I'd love to circle back 26 ish years later was um, whatever the future holds for Ron, he hopes that people will simply accept him for who he is. Yeah. I'd love to give you thoughts in 26 years later. Yeah. Uh, I think that was, uh, that still holds true. I think anybody, you know, uh, we all come with our own issues, right. And baggage. And um, I've always just tried to, when I found I could write songs, I was so inspired and relieved because I wasn't really good at anything else. So, I just, for me, I felt, well, I can maybe contribute something now. This is what I can do. And, um, but yeah, I've always felt, I don't know how other people feel, but I've always felt like a bit of a weirdo, you know, and a bit of, uh, I grew up kind of like a lot of, I don't know, like a freak really. And I think a lot of people that feel that way gravitate towards the arts because they feel they can meet other freaks too or something or like-minded people. Um, sometimes uh, you find the people there are just as judgmental as you, you know, you'd suspect other places, but, um, yeah. So I, I've always hoped that people would, um, I mean, I was so lucky to get signed, right. And to be able to be launched kind of on the, the world stage. Um, even though I didn't really, even though I wasn't really prepared for it, I didn't know how to dress or what my hair should do and all this sort of stuff. 
but I felt, okay, now I've got in the door, I, I just want to, you know, I just want to have a body of work, right? And and I think the people who who are into me, who have my records, they've they've always been very accepting of all that stuff, you know, of, of if I'm awkward or if whatever it is, they 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 seem to be okay with it. So. Yeah, and, and you've got a great body of work, so thank you for thank you. You know, what you've done over the years. Um, so I guess the last question I'd like to ask is, what's in your earbuds lately? What are you listening to that people should be checking out? Oh, man. Um, it's so hard because I I, I I guess I'm old and I tend to listen to a lot of older things. You know, lately for me, um, I've always admired Paul Williams' songwriting, you know, um, Phantom of the Paradise and the songs he wrote for the Carpenters and that. But most recently they reissued his very first album on vinyl. It's called Someday Man. And I wasn't familiar with it. Like there's none of his sort of hits on, on this record. Hmm. And he wrote all the songs with his, his writing partner, Roger Nichols, who was kind of like a bit of a genius. He's sort of a Bacharach type guy. And Paul wrote all the lyrics. But so anyway, I've never, so for me, it's a new album, even though it's from like 69 or whatever, I'd never heard it before. So I'm listening to that a lot. Um, just, just cause it's, it's new to me. Um, I'm listening, uh, over the last few years, actually, I've really gotten into Warren Zevon and become obsessed with him. So there's a few of his albums like Mutineer I've been listening to a lot, which he just had a point of view that you cannot find anywhere else, you know? He was really funny and he could be really kind of bizarre lyrically and also break your heart and in the next minute with something. And I mean, and, and something about his music makes me feel heroic when I listen to it. There's some kind of, I don't know what it is. And so he's been getting me through COVID. Um, nice. So, and I'm probably think of other stuff after I get off the phone. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. My pleasure. Ron, thank you so much for uh, your time today, uh, for you know, for for some of the stories that you've told, and, and for singing us a song. It's uh, it's been a pleasure having well, you. Well, I'm show. so I'm so glad we could do this. I know we we booked it back in September, I think, right or October, right? I can't remember when. It's been a while, but, yeah. But I'm glad yeah. we were able to make it happen. I'm, I'm yeah. so glad we were able to make and that it worked. That I didn't have to ask my wife for her help. And, <laughs> So, and, and just maybe you could drop me a line when this airs so I could let people know. Absolutely. Um, uh, but no, it was great seeing you and talking to you and hopefully we'll meet in person one of these days. So For sure. When, when we are, when we're all done this and we're, we're back to recording, we record normally at uh, Radical Road down on Queen Street East. So uh, okay. we'd love to have you back on and we can meet in person and play some more yeah. tunes and uh, carry do, on the conversation. I would do that again for sure. All right. That'd be awesome. awesome. Thank Thanks, you so much. Sir. Take care of yourself. Yeah, good night. Cheers.